couple of things, though, to keep in mind. First one, like Kirby said, um, just want to just warn you a little bit ahead of time. Nothing crazy. Uh, come on, this is still church. But uh, just wanted to kind of warn you guys a little bit ahead of time. With my young children, I would want to be warned a little bit ahead of time. We're going to talk about some things, and you'll see as we get into the message. Uh, the second thing I want to remind you of is LSU plays for the SEC championship this afternoon, everybody. None of you knew that because, come on, I am the last LSU basketball fan left on the planet. I am right here. I am still holding on to hope, everybody. I'm still in it to win it. And this week, you might not know, is a holiday for me. It is March Madness, all right? I have waited two years for this to come back. We did not get it last year, and so this is March Madness. And I'm seeing there is no buy-in from all of you, all right? I am the last fan of March Madness. But if you would like to fill out a bracket, uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, we do this every year because I enjoy it, all right? We have a victory bracket. You can go to www.victoryharvest.org slash March Madness. I should put up there our pastor's madness, all right? That's what the, the link should be. But I enjoy March Madness. I don't care if I'm the only bracket in there. I'm going to win the million bucks, all right, everybody? This is going to be the year that I do it. And so if you'd like to join with that, you know what it is, you don't know what it is, you just want to put LSU all the way to the championship, you can do that as well. But just something fun to do on there. And to get a little bit of buy-in, I'll let you know, I will announce the winner on that Sunday, all right, everybody? I will announce, especially because it's going to be me. And so I will announce that on that Sunday. So there, there you go. There's a little bit of buy-in for you, everybody. But I want to welcome you today uh, to part two of our series called Foundation. Uh, we've just been going through some of the theological bedrocks of the faith, and so today is part two of that. Because I want to encourage this idea that our series this year, we study the Bible in series throughout the year, that they would build on one another. We talked a little bit about that last week. That each one before would build then into the next one, and you would understand different truths as we progress through the year, that you would be able to grow because it's my job to make sure that we're not standing still, that we are actually growing, that we are actually moving in the faith that God has for us. And so last week we talked about repentance, what it means to repent from sin and turn to God, and that there is grace. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But it's meant to lead us to salvation. The goodness of God leads us to salvation, everybody. And so we talked a little bit about that in part one. So week two now, we're going to look a little bit at this idea of what is truth. We talked about repentance, we talked about faith, we're going to talk about truth today. And so I thought it would be fun, we're going to start off with a little game of true or false, alright everybody? So you can participate at home, you can participate in the room. Each of you is going to vote, I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to vote if you think that statement is true or false, alright? Everybody's going to participate, if you don't, you are a big sissy, alright everybody? So participate with me. Here's the first statement, alright? The Bible is the most shoplifted book in the world. Come on, everybody who thinks that's true... We're going to raise our hand. Everybody think that's true? Raise your hand. Bible is the most. Everybody think that's false? Raise your hands, everybody. It's true. The Bible is the most shoplifted book in the world. <laughs> that means something. I don't know what that means, but it means something, all right? It says, says something about our culture. I don't know. Second statement, all right, everybody? Cotton candy was invented by a dentist. Come on, somebody. That's a second statement. Cotton candy was invented by a dentist. Who says that's true? Come on, who says that's false? Where am I false? Who says I'm going to eat it anyway? I don't care. Come on. It's true, everybody. It was invented by that one is true. I believe that's called creating customers. I think that's what that's called. All right, third statement, everybody. A cat has 32 muscles in each ear. Third statement today. A cat has 32 muscles in each ear. How many say that's true? How many say that's false? The answer is who gives a rip how many muscles a cat <laughs> in its ear, all right? I don't... <laughs> we're going to start off good today, everybody. We're... All right, all right. But today we're going to talk about truth. It is true, by the way. It is true. The origin of today's message is a statement. It's actually a question found in Scripture. And we're going to read it together because this question has resounded through the centuries. It's been asked by Christians and non-Christians alike. It's been asked by those searching, those who have found. This question has resounded. It's been studied. It's been hashed apart. It, this thing has been. And so that's what encourages and inspires today's message. What is truth? Here's a conversation in John chapter 18. And he says, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world, the reason I came, Jesus said, the reason I was born, the reason I'm here right now, the reason I was born is to testify, come on, help me out, to the truth. 
to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate asks this question that's been discussed for centuries. Was he sincere? Was he being sarcastic? Was he actually interested? Was he actually seeking? Nobody knows. But we know this question he asked. His next question was, what is truth? Pilate asked Jesus, Jesus said, I came into this world for this reason. I was born for this reason to testify to the truth. And Pilate asked, what is truth? And the answer to this question is so important because it determines so many other things about our lives. In fact, if you're taking notes today, jot it down. Here's why it's important. What you believe decides how you behave. What you believe decides how you behave. What you believe to be true will determine how you behave. It determines how you behave in your relationships. It determines how you behave financially. It determines materially. It determines how you behave immorally in your life. Ultimately, it determines how you behave spiritually. And that determines what happens to you not only in this life, but in the one to come. What you believe to be true determines how you behave, and that determines and decides what happens in your life. Not only in this life, but in the one to come. And what you believe determines how you behave. And it's not just consciously. So it's not just conscious decisions that we're making that are impacted by what we believe. But subconsciously, what we believe determines how we behave. What we believe determines what we do. It determines how we act, how we react What we believe decides how you behave. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, uh, a couple of weeks after the flood of 2016, or a couple of months after it, uh, my family, my parents, my sister's family, my own family, we all moved into one house over off of Frenchtown Road. Come on, somebody. Eleven of us in one house. The jokes just write themselves, all right? And so we had our own little personal circus over there off of Frenchtown Road. And the house, the backyard, butted up to a lake in the back. That'll be relevant in just a moment. And so I was here at the church. We were rebuilding the church after the flood. And so I was up on the roof of this building. Come on, we spent a lot of time on the roof of this building trying to keep it from leaking after the flood. And we never really succeeded, all right, everybody? And so uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. If you feel a drip of water on you, I don't want to hear about it, all right? I don't want to. Just don't come tell me. I just don't want to know. But this house was over off of Frenchtown. I got a call, though. I just come off the roof, and it was about lunchtime. And I got a call on my phone. And so I opened I said, hello. And it was my son, Elijah. He was three years old at the time. And my wife had put him on the phone. And he said, Papa, there is a... And the phone cut out. And then it came back in, in our yard. And I was like, what? What's in the yard? He came back, there's an alligator in our backyard. And my wife got on the phone, Alyssa. And she said, yeah, there is an alligator in the backyard. Now, if you had been standing on Frenchtown Road at about 1 p.m. on that Wednesday, you might not have even seen my truck as it passed by you, going about 150 miles an hour to get to the house. And so I show up at the house, and Kirby, my brother-in-law, showed up at the same time. And so we go in the back, and sure enough, in our backyard, down by that lake, in the bushes, there this monster sits. I don't know if you've ever had a situation like this where you just don't know what to do. You don't know what the response should be. You know what I'm saying? And so we're standing there looking at this thing. And we do what any normal person would do in this situation, and we start taking pictures of it, right? We start trying to, like, figure out how I can get the alligator and me in the picture and not get eaten, right? And see how I can... And so we we don't know where it came from, don't know how it got there, don't know what it's looking for, come on. And it's not moving, it's just sitting there. And that's how they lure you in to eat you, right? I've seen Animal Planet, I know BBC Earth, right? They don't want to expend a lot of energy, they wait for you to come, and then they eat you. That is how it works. All right, everybody, I know some things in this mind of mine. So we can't figure it out. Now, one of the families from the church, the wife's parents had moved in next door to the circus. All right. They had bought the house next door to us and they had moved in just a couple of days before. And the mom's mom, we looked over, the grandmother was on the back porch, sweet little old lady standing on the back porch, just oblivious to the whole thing with a little 30 pound dog on a leash, just kind of standing there. Just looking around, and I thought that is the reason that this thing is here, right? It is dollar menu time at the neighbor's house. Like, that has has come out. And so I decide I'm going to be the hero and go save this woman from the monster, all right? I'm going to be the hero. And so I start doing, like, these G.I. Joe ninja moves. I'm, like, scaling around the fence, you know, the bricks. I'm trying to sneak over to their yard because I'm going to be the hero, but I'm not going to get eaten. You know what I'm saying, all right? I'm going to... And so I show up over there, and this lady's just standing there just looking around. And I, I show up finally just out of breath. And I'm like, listen, lady, there is an alligator down by the pond, and you need to go inside or your dog is about to get eaten. 
And instead of reacting like a sane person would react, she kind of just looked around and looked and she said, oh, it's not real. And I'm like, no, it's real, lady. You got to go inside. And she said, oh, no, baby, we had it at the old house and we didn't know what to do with it. And so when we got to the new house, we just threw it down there in the bushes by the pond. You you ever feel really, really, really stupid? Have you ever just... (laughs) I'm not asking for any particular reason. You ever just feel... (laughs) You ever feel really, really dumb? (laughs) Because we believed it was a man-eating death machine. (laughs) And so we behaved as if it were a man-eating death machine. What you believe decides how you behave. What you believe to be true will determine if you look like an idiot scaling across the bricks, right? And sneaking around the fence and all of that. That woman probably thought I had lost my mind. (laughs) What you believe decides how you behave. It determines how you react. And so what we believe in our lives, why did Jesus come? He came to testify to the truth. He came to give us truth, to show us what truth really is. What we believe then decides how we behave. And so if we understand when Pilate asked, what is truth? Jesus said, I've come to testify. It's why I came into the world. Jesus came to represent and to show us what truth really is. But on the flip side of that, there is an enemy. And it's not an alligator in a bush, everybody. It's not a statue from Hobby Lobby. It is an enemy of our souls. And the Bible calls him the father of lies. And so Jesus came to represent the truth. But there is an enemy who stands in contradiction to all of that truth. It's called Satan. It's called the deceiver. Our Bible talks about the father of lies, the great deceiver. And so Jesus came to represent truth. But we have an enemy who's the father of lies. I'll show it to you in John eight forty four. He was a murderer speaking about the devil from the beginning. Not holding to the what? To the truth. For there is no truth in him. And watch this in verse 45. He says, and then in the next verse, when he lies, he speaks. We'll go back to that one. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so we have one who represents the truth, Jesus, who came to show us what truth really is. And then we have an enemy that came as the father of lies. Now, Satan is cunning. He's sly in the way that he does this. He's not going to tell you a lie that's so outlandish that you can just look at it and say, well, that's just stupid. That's obviously a lie. He's not going to come to you and give you a lie that's so out of this world you couldn't possibly believe it. And so it's easy to see truth from non-truth. That's not how he works. In fact, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, a phenomenal explanation of this, an analogy of this, how the devil's not going to come and try to just trick you in a way that you automatically see it. And the nature of a deception is you don't know that you're deceived. All right, everybody? Everybody knows this? The reason that you are deceived is you don't know about it. And so he comes with these these small truths that sound good and they sound right and they seem well and they sound true-ish. And they seem like, well, maybe that could be true because it feels right and it sounds right. And so when he comes, he's not going to give you something so outlandish that you just automatically know on the face of it it's not true. But he'll give you something that seems right, feels right, sounds right. And you begin to think, well, maybe it, it sounds close, so it's true-ish. And you get a little bit, a step away from what is actually true. And another step, and another step. And eventually, on this journey that we're taking, you wake up one day and you realize you are far away from what the truth ever was. You ask anybody who's a carpenter or who works with wood, if you ask anybody when they start to make a cut, if they're making a long cut, maybe on plywood or a long piece, if you start that cut out even one degree, two degrees off, by the time you get to the end of a long cut, you are nowhere near where you started or where you were even aiming for. And so what the devil does is he'll bring something that sounds almost like it could be true. Almost like it could be right. It feels almost like it could be right. But it's only in a deception. It's only in a way to get you away from what the actual truth is. And so what he's trying to get us to do today is exchange the truth of God for a lie. To exchange the truth that Jesus said, I came into this world to bear witness to. The devil wants you to exchange that for something that maybe sounds right, feels right, seems right, but is an absolute lie. And you can see the result of this in Romans chapter 1. We'll look at a few different verses in this. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness, all the godlessness and all the wickedness of people 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness, who suppress the truth, who believe the lie. Watch this. He said, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. How many know that becomes more and more relevant every year that we live? They claim to be wise and they became fools. You see it in your own life. We see it in the culture that we live in. This idea that we are enlightened, that we know more than our parents before us, that we somehow know more than all the generations before. We somehow know more than Paul and all the apostles. We we know more. We are enlightened. We have learned and reached that pinnacle. He says, they claim to be wise and they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, this is what Paul was preaching to in that day and age. He was saying that they've had these statues, these idols set up. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They decided they were wise and they fell into foolishness. And in today's day and age, we've exchanged the truth of God for idols of our own. That we've set up the falseness. We've set up idols and oftentimes they're not carved out of wood or stone. In these images, we have idols of other things that we've set up in our life. And we've exchanged the truth for a lie. It's true-ish. It's things that we think might be. It seems right, feels right, sounds right. And so we believe it. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. Let me tell you this, what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes, I believe is truly one of the greatest problems and obstacles that our culture faces, that our generation faces. And I don't say this in the terms of generational years or or an age band of some kind. I'm talking about the culture, the years that we live in, our generation, these years that we are all the church in, the ones that we are called to reach. I believe this is one of the greatest obstacles that we face, not only in the church, but in the culture around us. This idea that our spiritual enemy, Satan, the father of lies, and these two weapons that he uses. And the first one, if you're taking notes, jot it down. The first one he uses is relativism. The first weapon that he uses in our culture today that we're seeing spring up all over our culture, even in the church, is relativism. And the second one is subjectivism. It's relativism and subjectivism. If you're taking notes, what is relativism? Relativism is the assumption that there is no such thing as absolute truth. It's the assumption that it's just relative, that it changes, that it shifts with time, that there is no absolute truth, that truth is not a constant, that truth just kind of grows or shifts or changes with the culture and with the thinking of the day, that society as a whole decides what truth is. It's relativism. For example, you hear this statement that what used to be true is no longer true, that maybe what used to be wrong is no longer longer wrong. In fact, as an example, I heard a statement this week. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and sermons, different denominations throughout the week. I don't know if you know this, but I also need to grow. All right, everybody. I also need to hear God's word preached. I don't know what idea you have in your head of what I do during the week, but I also need to grow in my faith. I have a soul. I am a person. I need to grow in my faith and my relationship with God. And so I don't roll up into Monday and like pull my sermon from Sunday and listen to it. All right, everybody. I don't know if that's your idea of what I do. It's not. All right. Just get that one out of your heads like I don't have this closed loop because a closed loop is the quickest way for this thing to go off the rails you understand that right everybody you understand that's just free for you today all right if you are in a closed loop you remember those sea monkeys they used to sell at books a million and walmart anybody remember sea monkeys anybody like a closed ecosystem right I choose not to be a sea monkey everybody all right and you should also choose put that on a bumper sticker I don't know where I was, but he was. All right. So this guy, this pastor I was listening to was relaying a conversation he had had this week with a student in his church. And so he was relaying how he had talked to this very strong Christian student and he was kind of working through some things with him. And the pastor said the student came to him and told him about a friend of his who had announced to their school that she was a lesbian. And announced to her school that this was what she wanted to do. This was her choice and her thing. And he said the student stopped and he looked at the pastor and he said, well, you know, I know when you were young, it was wrong to be a homosexual, but now we all know that it's, it's not wrong anymore. And I don't tell that story to make you clutch your pearls and, and pray, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I don't know what that's not why I'm telling the story. I don't even tell the story to say to try to prove that homosexuality is a sin. Romans one makes it very clear. It lists that amongst many other sins that we see in the church and outside of the church makes it very clear that it is a tool of Satan that's used to destroy a lie to destroy people's lives makes it very clear. But I tell that just to give you the idea that this is a very strong Christian student who's come to that place where they say what used to be true is no longer true. 
That somehow the devil has worked into their minds that what used to be wrong, and I see it in every age range, that they begin to say, well, what we used to think, well, that's no longer what the truth actually is. I know that's what the Bible said, but that was for another time and another place and another culture. We begin to trade the truth of God for a lie. We begin to exchange it for a lie. Begin to say, because this is the mindset that's grown into our culture. This idea, this relativism, that there is no absolute truth. That there is no thing. Now, the one who tried to coin this phrase in the 19th century is a German philosopher by the name of Hegel. All right. And so he became known as what he did became known as the Hegelian dialectic. And so you philosophy students can debate with me after class. All right, everybody. But he became known most for the Hegelian dialectic, which basically was this idea that there is a thesis. There is some truth. There is some idea. And that when it collides with the antithesis, when this thesis, this thought collides with another thought a contrary thought, a competing thought, that when they come together, whatever results after that fact is the synthesis. That is the new truth. And so you have an existing truth, and whenever it gets hit with something else, that suddenly they collide, and suddenly whatever you have left is now the new truth, the synthesis. And I'll prove it to you. I'll give you an example in case this is not making sense today. How many of you were alive back in the 1950s? Come on, don't be ashamed. Everybody raise your hand. How many alive in the 1950s? How many would you would you would admit or you would you would say that in the 1950s, the idea of marriage, the idea of a man and a woman being married was a sacred idea. It was a sacred thought. It was this thing that was holy, this thing that if you got divorced or a thing, it was kind of like a a taboo or thing. It was this thing that was sanctified. Now, how many of you were alive in the 1960s? Come on. How many of you went through? You don't remember the 60s because everybody was stoned. Come on, somebody. I've read about this. I know exactly. I've seen. But in the 1960s, it became this idea that now sex is what was glorified. 1950s, it was marriage and the institution of the family and those. In the 1960s, it became get as much sex as you can get. Just get out and write. Just do whatever you want to do. If you want to have sex, forget about getting married. Just kind of do anything you wanted to do. You had that thesis and then you had an antithesis. So a decade and then a second decade and they collided. And what you got after the fact was then the synthesis. You got this idea that marriage was not so important. It was the sex that was important. It was the idea that you just you just find whoever you like and don't even bother getting married because it's all about the sex anyway. And so you had this thing, this synthesis arise from those ideas, this idea that arise. And so relativism is saying that there is no absolute truth, that it's not the thesis or the antithesis. It's just the synthesis. And that will become the new thesis and on and on that there is no thing as absolute truth. It's one of the weapons of the enemy. The second one. Let's look at that one. Subjectivism. He said, what is subjectivism? It's the belief that the subject, I, the subject, have the right to determine what is right and wrong without submitting to any outside authority. So I get to decide what is right or wrong based on how I feel, based on what I decide, based on what I think should be right or wrong. I get to be the subject. I get to be the author of my story. And so I decide the right or wrong. And I don't care what you think, and I don't care what truth you try to impose on me. I am the source of truth in my life. Subjectivism leads me to these beliefs. That as long as I'm not hurting anybody, then it must be okay. That as long as I'm sincere, then it doesn't really matter what I believe. That as long as, right, as long as I really believe in what I'm doing, then it won't matter. And as long as it makes me feel good, then it should be right. Those ideas begin to creep in our minds and they seem right. They seem good. They seem okay. It sounds almost true-ish. It sounds almost like it should be right. And these ideas, subjectivism begins to plant these lies in our minds. And the problem is we begin to believe in those false beliefs. And if I believe in those, I take one step away from truth. And then I take a second and then a third and I wake up one day and realize I am nowhere near truth. That what I'm actually doing and the actions that I'm taking are nowhere near what God's truth says about them. That I'm going to determine. But subjectivism, great weapons of our enemies. Relativism and subjectivism that attack the truth in our life. All right, now let's do this. Because about this time in the message, this is where it gets challenging for me. Because if I start saying, okay, here is what truth is, if you've been raised in the mindset that there is no absolute truth, if you've been bathed in the culture that there is no truth, when I start saying things like this is what the truth is, automatically you start, you start throwing up walls. Automatically you start thinking, well, I'm not going to listen to that. Because when you start making statements like this, like this is what truth is, people go one of two ways. They either become dangerous or they become arrogant. 
There's one of two ways. That puts me in an awkward position as one who proclaims truth. As one who tries to discover what the truth is and proclaim it. So what I'm asking you this morning, what I'm asking you to do is if you're skeptical or if you're, if you're saying I'm throwing up walls to this or if you say I, I don't really think I see that in my own life. I don't, what I'm asking you to do is just go on a journey with me just a few minutes and just open your mind just for a little while. Let me talk just a little bit and just see if I can give you a reason why you might be throwing up those walls. If I can give you a reason why you might be thinking that what I'm saying is not true, that why you might be thinking that I just don't have my head screwed on straight or I'm just not with whatever it is that you're with. I'm just not. Let Just give me a few minutes to lay this out. And I think by the end of it, you might realize that's the reason you might be rejecting absolute truth. Because if we could just, I guess, back up the conversation, we would just decide a couple of ground rules here at the beginning of the conversation. The first one is the idea that there could be absolute truth. Because if you're a thinking person, you probably admit that there must be at least one absolute truth. Because to make the statement there are no absolute truths is an absolute statement. You understand where I'm going here? Right, you understand that. So most people would admit there's at least one absolute truth. Now let's assume for a minute that a seeker of truth could actually find it. That if someone looking for absolute truth could actually find it. And when you find the truth, when you actually find it, it does one of two things. It either hurts you or it benefits you, depending on where you are standing. When you find truth, it either benefits your life or it hurts you in a way that you see the consequences. But either way, you suffer the consequences of that truth. And so you're not arrogant and you're not dangerous. You're just when you suffer the consequences of the truth, it hurts you or it helps you. But now as a steward of that truth, you want to go back and tell others about the truth that you found, whatever it does, whether it hurts you or helps you. You now want others that maybe you care about to also know the truth. That makes sense, everybody. If you're looking at me blank, just know you are within the 90% that are doing so right now. And so let me, let me explain it this way, all right? Let me, let's go back to our story because now I am the only one, keep in mind, I have been given truth. I have been told that the man-eating death machine is not a man-eating death machine, all right? But now picture it in your mind because now I am the only one who knows that the man-eating death machine is not a man. Remember, you remember the story. I am the only one who has come to rescue this poor old woman. I alone have been the hero of this story, all right? And so I alone know that the alligator is not real. Nobody else knows, but I alone know. So picture it. They're all on that porch without the truth. I am now on this porch, and I am the sole steward of truth. Same conditions as before, except now I know something. I have a truth that they don't have. You want to see a manly man go approach a deadly alligator. You want to see someone come striding out from that porch with no fear. And my wife, Alyssa, Jane Kirby, they're all screaming at me as I'm heading down. All the kids are screaming. They're excited because Uncle Ben's about to get eaten. It's a great, great moment in the backyard. I stride down there. Now, about the time I jump on its back like Steve Irwin. All right, everybody. They realize that this thing is not. They, they also come to the realization of the truth. But as a steward of truth, now I decided how I was going to reveal it, all right? The analogy breaks down a little bit there. But let me tell you what I did not do. I didn't receive the truth and leave the neighbor's house, get in my truck, and let my family live in fear the rest of the day. I didn't receive the truth and say, well, that's great. Now I know what's going on, and I'll just never tell anybody and let them just kind of live their lives in fear and think that this animal's in the back. No, as a steward of truth, it was important to me that they also know. That my kids don't go to bed thinking that there's this monster in the bed. It's important to me that they also know as a steward of the truth, I found the consequences of the truth. I discovered, even though it made me look like an idiot, I discovered the truth. And now as a steward of it, it's important to me that I share it. It's important to me that I don't leave them where they are. So what I want to do today is I want to make a statement of truth. That I want you to know that I care about you. And so I want to make this statement of truth. And if you say, well, I already believe that, then I want you to know that this is a message you can then pass on. If you care about someone, you tell them the truth. All right, everybody? How many know somebody that you don't really care about? You're not going to tell them they have something stuck in their teeth. You're not going to tell them their haircut looks awful. You're not going to tell them, but you know somebody close enough. How many are glad you have friends close enough to tell you there is something in your teeth? To let you know there's something like I, I went around one day all day long. I got home and my wife was like, you know, you have a hair just stuck out to the side. And I made a list of every person I encountered that day because now I knew who loved me and who did not love me. All right, everybody, I won't tell you if you're on that list. All right, I won't, I won't let you know. 
I mean, when you love somebody, you tell them the truth. As a steward of truth, you've experienced the consequences, whether it was conviction, whether it was beneficial, whatever it was, and you want to share that truth because it will impact their lives. And today what I want to do is I want to share a truth. I want to make a statement of truth. And if you've been raised in the mindset that there is no absolute truth, that there is nothing, automatically right now your walls will go up. But I'm asking you, just give me a few minutes. Let's take a journey together and let me just kind of explain why you might reject the statement. Why you might be coming against this statement. And probably by the end of this, you realize at least the reason why you might be rejecting it is true. All right, you ready? So Pilate asks, what is truth? Here's the statement. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Truth is not a what, but a who. I want to make this statement today. Truth is not a what, but it's a who. Truth is not just a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's not just something somebody teaches you in school. Truth is not just some highbrow, fantastical idea out in the other sphere somewhere. Truth is not just something that you hear on the radio or truth is not just something like that. No, truth is a who. It's not just a what. Imagine with me if Jesus's claim was actually true. I want you to take this journey with me. When he spoke this in John chapter 14, And he spoke this, and Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, and I am, help me out, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Imagine when Jesus said that, that this is a statement of truth. That Jesus said, I am the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, truthfully, I am God in the flesh. I am the truth that you have been waiting for. I am the truth. And so truth is not a what. It's not some idea far off somewhere. Truth is a who. Truth can be known. Truth is a person. And watch this in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And watch this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was God. And now it says the word, the truth became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and what? Full of grace and truth, truth and grace. Jesus came from the father. He says he came, he stepped into this world. God wrapped in humanity came to this world as truth. But it doesn't say just truth. What does it say? It says he came full of grace and And truth. Full of grace and truth. So I asked you the question, why do so many people reject the statement that Jesus made that he is the truth? Why would so many people reject the statement that Jesus is truth? It's not because of the life that Jesus lived. If you study the life that Jesus lived, atheist and Christian, I don't care how much you hate Christianity. If you actually read and study Jesus's life, you can't help but admit that it was an incredible life. That he was an incredible person. You read the way that he interacted with people, that he cared for the poor, that he loved those who were downtrodden, that he healed the sick, that he loved those around him, that he treated them with kindness and compassion. You look at the life of Jesus. I don't care what you think about Christianity. I don't care what you believe in this world. If you study the life of Jesus, you have to admit how incredible his life was. How incredible a person that he was. How incredible the way he treated others. How incredible the way he lived up to every single goal you could possibly set. If you study the life of Jesus, it's not the life of Jesus that makes people reject his statement that he is truth. It's not the life that he lived so much as it is the way that Christians have represented the life that he lived. And to that, I have no defense. The reason that most people would reject the idea that Jesus is the truth is not because Jesus didn't live a certain way. He lived perfectly. It's the way that we have represented his life. And to that, I have no argument. Because we are incredibly, incredibly hypocritical in the way that we live. If we were to set up our life, my own included, if I set my life against the way that Jesus lived, there is no comparison. The way that we treat other people, the way that we represent our Savior, the way that we do, we are incredibly arrogant, incredibly judgmental. And so, so many people instinctively reject Jesus because Christians have been all about truth and no grace. The way that we've lived has been all about truth and no grace. They begin to see us as, well, if I don't believe that, I don't do that, you're going to hell. And if you don't act like I do, then you're going to hell. And if you're not in our club, then you're going to hell. We've been all about trying to figure out what is the truth and no grace attached to it. 
said Jesus came full of truth and full of grace. Grace and truth hand in hand. Because when we're all full of truth and no grace, it becomes legalism. It becomes judgmental. Truth without grace becomes brutality and we destroy people. And we drive them away from God by the millions. When we live these lives that in no way represent the life that Jesus lived, we drive people away from the truth. And if you're putting up walls, chances are it's not because of Jesus. It's because of those who have claimed his name. And so if you're putting up walls around you, if you're pushing it away, it's because of how we've represented Christ. Truth, but no grace. Judgmental legalism. But the flip side of that is what we're experiencing in the culture today and what the world offers, and that is grace without truth. So then the flip side of this thing is when it's grace without truth and we begin to say, well, I don't really care what you believe as long as it makes you feel good. And I don't really care what you do as long as, you know, you feel right in doing it. As long as you're sincere, then I, whatever, man, I just don't really care about that. You can just kind of do. And then the God becomes tolerance because it's all grace with no truth. But check this out. When Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. This is the balance that makes the truth of God so incredible because I can have legalism all on its own. I've got no problem coming up with rules and enforcing them. I can make people feel judged all on my own, everybody. You understand that. But the balance of who we are called to be is both truth and grace, grace and truth. And Jesus came full of that. Came full of that grace and truth. And when you encounter grace and truth, when you encounter Jesus... It is absolutely incredible how your life has changed. When you encounter Jesus, it is life changing. And the challenge is, I cannot argue you into that realization. I can explain it. I can, I can tell you what Jesus has done for me. I can share my... But I cannot argue you into that realization that when you encounter grace and truth, it will change your life. I can't argue you to that place. And so what I would do is say this, what is truth? You better seek it. What is truth? If you're on the fence, if you're wondering, if you've put up the walls, you're saying, well, what is truth? You're like Pilate, wondering what it could possibly be. I would just say this. You'd better seek it because what you believe to be true, what is truth, will decide how you behave. And how you behave decides how you will live, not only in this life, but where you will spend eternity. You better seek truth. You better find out what truth is. And here's what I would just implore you. If you're a skeptic, Don't listen to what I say. If you're a skeptic, open up this book and read about Jesus. If I can give one just request, one employee, we'll give you a free Bible. We'll give you as many Bibles as you want. I've got them in the foyer. I'll give you as many as you want today. But open this thing up and read about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I suggest start in John in the New Testament. Just read about the life that he lived. And as you read about him, just keep your mind open and ask yourself, could he really be truth? Could he really be what he said he was? That's all I'm asking you to do. Just read about Jesus. If you're going to seek truth, and it's so important because it decides not only this life, but the next. If you're going to seek truth, read about Jesus. And the second thing I believe, as you do, the second thing will happen. You can jot it down if you're taking notes, and that is Jesus will set you free. I promise you, if you seek him, you will find him. And when you find him, you'll find truth and he'll set you free. Watch this in John chapter 8. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is not a what, it's a who. You read about him, you seek him with all your heart, the Bible says. You will find him if you seek him, if you're looking for it. Don't listen to me just because I stand up on a stage and I tell you something. I'm asking you, open your heart and read about Jesus. Don't let whatever example of Christianity you may have seen that may have turned you away from God, don't let that be Jesus. Actually read about his life. If you're honest about seeking truth, if you really are honest about that search, then I invite you, read about Jesus. And make that decision for yourself whether what he is saying is true. Because I promise you this is truth and that Jesus will set you free absolutely and completely set you free. You say free from what? Free from the bondage and the things that you are bound in in your life. Free from the addiction that haunts every waking moment that you have. Free from the idea that your sin will send you to hell. Free from the idea that Jesus is not. He'll set you free from all of that. He set you free from the horror of your sin that would bring you before the judgment seat of Christ. He sets you free. 
That you can actually be totally and completely free. Free from the idea of trying to find meaning and not finding it at any moment. Free from the idea that depression would keep you bound. Free from those ideas. Jesus can set you free. He can set you free. He is the truth and he can set you free. I'll leave you with one final example today, everybody. When I was in college, I lived in the oldest dorm on campus, all right? I just, it was in the middle of the campus, and I didn't trust my alarm clock to wake me up. And so I lived right there in the middle in the oldest dorm for three years, right there in the center of the campus. Now, it's been torn down since then. Probably a pretty good thing it was, because they found asbestos everywhere inside uh, that college dorm. And so when they were tearing it down, it became like this hazmat site, right? Like a nuclear fallout, like them in the suits and the big bubble tent and all those things. And I remember thinking, I lived in there for three years. I must be Superman. Come on, somebody. I must be. I've been living in that. But living in that dorm, we realized about the first or second year that the doors to our rooms opened inward. I don't know if that's the fire safety or what. I don't know if that's up to code. But they opened into the rooms off of the hallway. And so we discovered, as college guys would, we discovered if you tied one doorknob to the other doorknob, you could trap four people in their room at one time. Come on, somebody. You could... You could trap across the hallway. And so that became the thing. For about a month, that became the thing to do. You would wake up tied in your room. And you could not, there was nothing you could do to get out until somebody came and rescued you. Somebody would have to come and cut the rope. Now that is the low-hanging fruit of the analogy, all right? That will just preach all by itself. But let me tell you what happened next. Because everything always escalates, correct? Everything. But anyways, what we did next, someone else did. I would never, ever do such a thing. What we did next is one morning we had tied in a certain set of guys, two guys on one side, two on the other. And we were all standing around just kind of laughing as they tried to pull their way out because we knew there was no way. And about that time, our RD, our resident director, who was kind of over the building, poked his head in down the hallway and saw what we were doing. And so Joe shouted at us. He's like, hey, let him out. And then he went back down the stairway. And so we untied the rope and we took it right. We took the rope back off of the thing and we opened up. Here's the problem, everybody. Nobody told the guys in the room. So we untied the doorknobs and we all were just kind of chilling in the hallway. But nobody told the guys inside the room that we had untied the doorknobs. And so about five minutes later, the guys on the right came out just spitting mad, right? Because one of them had to go to work. And they came out just super upset. But nobody told the guys on the left. And so we waited. And we waited. And we waited. They never tried the doorknob. They never tried it. One of the guys went, second floor story window, one of the guys went out the window into a tree, fell, broke his arm trying to get out of the room. Come on, somebody. Confession's good for the soul, bad for the reputation. Broke his arm trying to get out of the room because they never tried the doorknob. Come on, somebody. How many know what was the truth that you're free, that the door's not locked? What was the lie that you are trapped inside? The truth will set you free, everybody. The truth will set you free. Now, he didn't talk to me for a long time after that one. I wouldn't talk to me either. All right, everybody. The truth will set you free. So many people are sitting locked inside a room thinking it's locked, thinking I can never be free when the truth will set you free. What's the truth that you can be free? What's the lie that you're stuck in whatever it is that has you stuck? What's the lie that you're never going to be free from that thing? What's the lie that Satan brings in that those chains can never be broken, that you'll always be that way, that it'll never be different? What's the truth that Jesus can set you free, that Jesus can set you completely free, not that you come out and go back in, not that it somehow reclaims you later in life. He can set you completely free. That he said, I came to testament to the truth, that he said, I am the way, the truth and the life, that there is no other way to the father. There is no other way to be truly free. There is no other truth that he is truth. And he is grace and that Jesus came to set you free. And all I can tell you is that when I met Jesus, he changed me. That when I met Jesus, when I came encountered with the truth, it changed who I am. I can't argue you into a point. I can only ask you if you're searching for truth, open your mind and read about Jesus. Search for Jesus and I promise you, you will find him and you will experience truth. It's not a what, it's a who, it's a person. It's someone you can have a relationship with. That Jesus came that you could be totally and completely free. Would you bow your heads with me as we close today? God, we thank you that you are truth. 
Jesus, we thank you that you came into this world to bear witness to the truth and that you are the truth. And Lord, I pray that those who are sincere in finding it would find you. That those who are genuine in their idea that they want to find truth, absolute truth, that they would find you. So Lord, we pray right now, open our hearts, make us sincere in that search. Help us, Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. As we end, I want to do something a little different. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Nobody else looking around, but if you would say today, if you would say in my own life, I know people who are struggling with this idea of relativism and this lie of subjectivism. I know people who are under this lie, who have worked it into their life, who are saying, if it makes me feel good or if it makes sounds good, then I can just justify my own truth. If you know someone and you want to pray for them, would you just raise your hand right now? No one's looking around, but if you know someone under that, that lie of relativism, would you raise your hand right now if you want to pray for them? A lot of hands across the room. Now let me ask a second question. Nobody looking around, but you would say, in my own life, I see that lie of relativism sneaking in. I see that lie of subjectivism making its place in my heart. I see that happening in my own life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? You want to pray for that? Amen. Let me tell you what happened. First, there was a lot of hands, not so many on the second one. But here's what I know. And here's what I believe. And that is that so many of us have been blinded to it in our own lives. Because I truly believe myself included that every single one of us, every single one of us have an area where these ideas have brought themselves into our lives. We're blinded to it. The Bible says that our eyes are blinded to the idea that we could have this in our own. And so some of us need to turn inwardly and see that they have worked their way into our hearts. We need to actually take stock of our lives and say relativism and subjectivism. I have worked those lies into areas that I've justified. Areas that I've kept close to the heart that I've said, well, that's positive. That sounds right to me. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And we've justified our way away from truth. And so, Lord, today we pray. God, I pray for those that we know and love, God, those who are hurting and are suffering under these lies. We lift them up right now, Lord, as believers in the truth. We lift up those who are suffering, Lord, who have have believed and bought into the lie that it doesn't matter. That there is no truth. We pray for them right now, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. That no matter what example they've seen in the past of the church or of Christianity, Lord, that Jesus, you would make yourself real to them. We pray for them. And Lord, I ask now also for those who are believers. For those who put their, tr- their, tr- their trust, God, and their faith in Christ. Those who are believers, but they've allowed these untruths to work their way in. Because it's so easy to believe these lies. Pray right now, myself included. We repent, God. We repent for any area of our life that we've allowed an untruth to make its home. We repent for any area of our life that we've allowed to rise up against what we know to be truth. And we confess. We ask you, power of the Holy Spirit, that you would work it out of our lives, that you would begin to show us and begin to correct us. Convict us. Lord, any area that we may have deviated, one, two, three steps away, Lord, we want to come back. We don't want to continue down the road to destruction. There's a way, the Bible says, it seems right to the heart of a man, but in the way end, it leads in death. It ends in death. And so we don't want to go down that road, Lord. We want to be convicted. We want to go after what is actually true. Lord, we want to continue to believe in you. Help us. Holy Spirit, give us the power to change. And as we close today, there are some of you that in the next few weeks, you're going to be searching for truth and you're going to find Jesus. If you're honest about the search, if you're sincere about wanting to know what truth actually is, promise you, as you begin to search, you're going to find Jesus. There's some of you who are here today or watching online and you say, I already want to accept that truth. You say, I'm already at that place. I don't need to search anymore. I believe that Jesus is truth. And you say, I believe that Jesus died for me, for my sins. And I believe that he rose again. I believe that he is the truth. You say, I want to make that decision right now. 
I don't want to wait any longer. I want to make the decision because I believe it. If that's you today, I want to pray with you. No one else is looking around, but I want to pray with you. If you've made that decision. And come on, church, we're going to pray with them. But if you say, that's me, today is my day. I want to make that decision. I want to accept that Jesus is the truth. Pray this prayer. And church, we pray with them out loud. Nobody prays alone. Say these words. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I repent of my sins. I repent of believing the lie. I believe that you died for my sins. And I believe that you rose again. In Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. And Father, I thank you for our church. God, I thank you for our journey together towards all that you have for us. I thank you, God, that you will help us to speak truth and grace. I thank you, Lord, that you will help us to live lives that can example and exemplify the truth and the grace that Jesus came to bring. Lord, I thank you that we can be examples of the love of Christ, the goodness of God that leads to salvation. We can be those examples in the culture that you've called us to reach. Not the culture that you've called us to judge, not the culture that you've called us to just shy away or to run away from. I pray that you would use us to reach them. Holy Spirit, give us the strength to live lives that would actually reach people with the truth and the grace of God's word. Make us examples. And Lord, we thank you that you do choose to use us. We count it an honor to be servants of the kingdom. We'll give you all the glory and all the praise. For you deserve all of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's church said, amen and amen. Come on, church, can we put our hands together for what God has done today? Give me 30 seconds before we go. If you prayed that prayer, I would love to talk with you. If you say, I accept that truth. If you prayed that prayer today, I would love to go over what the next steps of Christianity are. I'll be at the front of the stage. would love to talk with you over that. I'd love to meet you if you'd like to. I'll be at the front. If you're watching online or you feel more comfortable, text the word SAVE to 66599. Number's up on the screen. We just shot a quick video just for you to let you know your next steps. We don't save your number. It's not a marketing ploy. We just want to help you in your journey with Christ. Either one of those, if you'd like to, would love to walk over those journeys. We'd love to talk that with you. Otherwise, you guys are dismissed. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday morning.